0: We want them infected. That's a real quote from a top Trump appointee. It sounds like something from Resident Evil, but it's real. And that's what this episode is about. It's about how the failed quest for COVID herd immunity led doctors to embrace the anti-vaccine movement. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs Cycle. We talk a lot about side gigs on this show. So if your side gig or even your main gig is a medical technology product that you want to pitch, or you're even in the early stages of product development, you could benefit from consulting with Charm Economics. They use government data peer-reviewed journals, and trade literature to support and enhance your business model at all stages. Whether an early stage pitch deck creation, return on investment modeling, or peer-reviewed article production, they can help. See how Charm Economics can transform your business development today so you can focus on building your product, growing your network, and implementing your vision. Check them out at charmeconomics.com. Dr. Jonathan Howard, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Again, I think you might be the guest with the most episodes at this point. This is episode number three. I'm number one. I'm number one. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you. For those who haven't heard you on the previous episodes, or just a brief introduction, both of us are actually on staff at NYU. I'm at NYU Long Island. You're at NYU Bellevue, where you are double boarded in both neurology and psychiatry, and the bulk of your practice is MS. And you're also a frequent contributor to Science Based Medicine, which is a great blog. We cover some stuff that they've covered there, at least I aspire to make sure we're doing everything by the book. Anything I missed there in your introduction? Good enough for me. (laughs) Okay. And so we're going to be talking about your new book, We Want Them Infected. That is a dark title. So why don't you tell us a little about the book?
1: Yeah. I mean, in some ways the title is really all you need to know about the book and it's a really sort of shocking title. We want them infected. And that quote comes not just from some random quack, although he turned out to be a quack, but at the time comes from a man by the name of Dr. Paul Alexander, who was an epidemiologist and official in the U S department of health and human services during the Trump administration. And he wrote this on July 4th, 2020, before anyone had been vaccinated, he said Infants, kids, teens, young people, young adults, middle age with no condition, etc., have zero to little risk, so we use them to develop herd. We want them infected. And I always sound a little bit like a crazy conspiracy theorist when I describe the title of the book to people who are unfamiliar with this, but there was a movement led by doctors who were largely sheltered from the consequences of their words to purposely infect unvaccinated children, teens, young adults, even younger middle-aged people with COVID in the hopes that this mass infection would create herd immunity and the virus would go bye-bye. And this influenced our pandemic response at the national level and multiple states, and there were real-world consequences to be paid.
0: So the idea was that they were trying to get back to normal, right? That they thought that there were severe consequences to all the lockdowns, among other things, right? Did this happen pre-vaccine, that he made this statement, or post-vaccine?
1: Yeah, that was July 4th, 2020. So that was before the vaccines. And this idea was formulated in the pandemic's first months, in March and April, largely by doctors who wildly underestimated COVID, who predicted that it would kill 40,000 people, 50,000 people, but that it was much less dangerous than everyone was saying. And... They were right to fear the complications of lockdowns. I I think it's always worthwhile to think about the worst case scenario. And I'm always very careful when talking about the lockdowns because they did have real harms. I don't know anyone who says this, says otherwise. And as I frequently point out, the doctors who I write about were sheltered from the consequences of their words. I want to recognize that I was largely sheltered from the consequences of lockdowns in that I never missed a paycheck. I was never lonely. I worked throughout the pandemic. My children missed, you know, a year and a half of school, which really affected them. So I wasn't untouched by the lockdowns, but compared to a small business owner, you know, or a young person who had their complete social life wiped out from them, had it relatively easy. So I want to recognize that. But yes, these people came up with this plan to have pure COVID in 80% of the world amongst the world of the not vulnerable and then have zero COVID in the world of vulnerable people. And they had this idea that the two could be completely welled off until herd immunity arrived, which they thought would take three to six months, a very optimistic timeline.
0: That sounds like trying to watch a three-year-old pour a soda from a two-liter bottle into their tiny little sippy cup, right? Like they're expecting it to all go in the right amount up until the cup with nothing spilled, and then they drop the bottle in the whole bottle, right? That idea that there would be no collateral damage from this strategy is incorrect. And the fact that these individuals have no risk is incorrect. So these two base assumptions that go into it, it was like they were in this hurry to get back to normal. And this was their strategy, consequences be damned, because they must have recognized that there were going to be some consequences to that strategy. They just assumed that it would be not as bad as the other strategy.
1: Yeah, it's hard to know what they really thought. i give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they thought this was the best way forward at the time. But they had multiple wrong assumptions, of course, many of which you just touched on. Number one, that people could be neatly divided into vulnerable and not vulnerable. You know, like you, yes or no question. They assumed that death was the only bad outcome from COVID. They only talked about mortality. They assumed that once you got COVID, you couldn't get it again. And they assumed that vulnerable people, senior citizens, people with disabilities, potentially pregnant women, although they never talked about them, could be completely walled off from society again while herd immunity arrived. And they said that this would take three to six months. And they would say they came up with a lot of good, a good plan to wall people off. So they said during times of high transmission, older people should have food delivered at home. Okay. That sounds good. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a huge gap between writing that sentence, older people should have food delivered at home and actually setting up a food delivery program for tens of millions of housebound seniors while COVID ravaged outside. So people with no real world responsibility made really hard, probably impossible things sound really easy. And when public health officials couldn't do those impossible things, they became villainized. Now we told you what to do, just feed old people at home and you didn't do it. You didn't listen to us. So there were a lot of problems. And then when vaccines came out, the whole project became largely irrelevant,
0: but they became anti-vaccine, at least for young people. So, so, yeah, let's talk about that because it's not just about we want them infected, right? There are other stances that were taken by people in power, by people with academic titles that you discuss in the book. So the, what were those other stances? Yeah, let me just talk a little bit if I
1: can about some of the doctors who I do discuss in the books. I think that it's important. These were doctors who are at our top universities, Johns Hopkins, Harvard, Stanford, a lot at UCSF for some reason they were widely respected before the pandemic. I don't think any of them were exactly household names like Anthony Fauci, although he probably wasn't a household name before the pandemic either. But And
0: I don't think he wanted to be. I don't think he wanted to be. He didn't live that life and then thrust upon him. Yeah.
1: But, but anyways, there was a Nobel Prize winner, some of the most famous and decorated scientists in the country, and others were just very well re- respected professors. These doctors mixed good advice with bad advice. So, All of the anti-vaccine doctors who I was interested in before the pandemic, names like Kelly Brogan, Andrew Wakefield, Sherry Tenpenny, I mean, they went completely off the walls during the pandemic saying vaccines would make
0: you magnetic. Oh, right. Tenpenny. Interesting that her name is Penny in it and not magnetic. And she thought like she was the one that on television, right, stuck something to her face to show the magnetism. Some, yeah, or one of her acolytes did. Yeah.
1: And now she's advising RFK Jr., but that's another story. But related, but a related story. You know, we could circle back to that because it is related, actually. And our my old friend, Kelly Brogan, the only doctor in the book who I met who doesn't believe HIV causes AIDS, doesn't believe SARS-CoV-2 causes COVID. So, so these people... Wait, Kelly Brogan, sorry, but you mentioned the name. You've got a connection to her. What is that connection? So, she was my introduction into the anti-vaccine movement because we trained together at NYU. And after she left, she started posting on Facebook these wildly crazy anti-vaccine sorts of things. But I was vaguely aware of the anti-vaccine movement, but it became a source of fascination to me that a very smart person, she went to MIT, she went to Cornell, and I worked with her, she was smart, could fall for these ideas. And... The first few times I encountered these anti-vaccine arguments, I didn't know how to refute them. I didn't know what they weren't telling me. I didn't know what facts they had gotten wrong. I completely underestimated their mendaciousness. I think I pronounced that right. Anyways, their ability to lie. So, for example, her ex-husband, a man by the name of Sayer G, who runs a anti-vaccine kite site called Green Med Info, put out this list of 200 evidence-based reasons not to vaccinate your children. He did this in like 2014. And I read some of them and they had titles like, a measles outbreak occurred in a highly vaccinated population. Okay, so I go to read the original paper and he had rearranged the words, essentially. And it the actual title was, I don't remember it exactly, but a measles outbreak occurred in a highly vaccinated population due to pockets of under vaccination. So what it was saying, if you have a city where 95% of the kids are vaccinated, but the 5% of unvaccinated kids all live in the same neighborhood, you can still have a measles outbreak. So you can have pockets where herd immunity doesn't exist anymore. So anyways, I thanks to her, I learned all that I could about the anti-vaccine movement. And so I think that prepared me very well for this moment. But the doctors who I discuss, back to that and why they're different than her, is they mix good advice with bad advice. So they recognize that an 80-year-old with you know heart disease and cancer better avoid COVID and do everything they can and get every single vaccine. And unlike Kelly Brogan, they had a huge influence. So Kelly Brogan primarily spoke to people who were unlikely to get vaccinated in the first place, people who trusted her before the pandemic. These doctors were all over Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, the CNN, they testified before Congress, they advised, especially through Scott Atlas, Donald Trump, they advised Ron DeSantis, they advised the governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin. So they were very influential and they have a huge social media followings. So, and again, I think their ability to mix good advice with bad advice made them seem very trustworthy and they could speak in very scientific jargon.
0: It's interesting, the approach of mixing the good advice with the bad advice, right? Because people like Kelly Brogan, most people are going are gonna to smell that something just isn't right, even if they're not, you know, even if, if they're an English major who hasn't taken a science class since high school, they're just going to recognize how fringe she is, right? They're going to recognize how off the
1: wall. Right. She was posting, you know, these very paranoid comments at the start of the pandemic, That this was all part of a dehumanization plot that preceded the Holocaust, you know, this sort of stuff. Although some of the doctors who I discussed, the ones who are currently full professors at UCSF, started to echo that language and describe measures to control the virus as akin to what happened in Nazi Germany and have embraced RFK Jr. to varying degrees, who regularly compares measures to control COVID and even pre-pandemic. To the Holocaust and has said appalling things like, you know, at least Anne Frank could hide away in an attic, so she kind of had it better than people who couldn't go into Applebee's unless they showed a vaccine passport. They, you know, atrocious sort of things like that. So, so I think that some of the worlds began to have begun to overlap more recently in, in, in very s- scary ways.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. So, so some of these doctors are contrarians, right? because they push back on the recommendations and they kind of help people find this middle ground. They're like, I believe in science, but, right, it helps them sleep at night because they're finding a way to make their worldview fit and yet not be seen as a quack, really. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of them
1: before the pandemic made a career out of being contrarian, which is not a bad thing. You know, we definitely need people to think differently. And some true pandemic heroes work. I won't necessarily call them contrarians, but people who thought differently. I'm thinking of this woman, Karina Carrico, who was this mRNA scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, who apparently before the pandemic was just this random sort of scientist who got a little... You know, corner of some lab somewhere to do her obscure research but never got a lab of her own or any funding or any recognition. But anyways, her work paved the way for the mRNA vaccines. Unlike all of the doctors who I discussed, she is extremely media shy when she became famous for about a week during the pandemic and then retreated back into the bubble from which she came because she said, I just enjoy doing science and that's all I want to do and no one's ever heard from her since. Unlike Mm -hmm. these doctors who never turned down a media appearance and to become social media and YouTube stars.
0: So these doctors are contrarians, but in science-based medicine, you all are skeptics. So what's the difference between a skeptic and a contrarian? So that's a good question. I think the contrarian
1: doctors, someone called it obligate contrarianism on Twitter, meaning they just feel the need to be a little bit different. So in the spring of 2020, When everyone was saying COVID was a big deal, they were saying, no, it's way overblown. When everyone else was saying, beware of the variants, they were saying the pandemic is ending. When everyone else was saying, you know we don't know that the vaccines block transmission, they were saying vaccines are gonna end the pandemic. When everyone else was saying children need vaccines, they were saying children don't need vaccines. And they would use all sorts of fallacious arguments and fake statistics to make these arguments. So I think a contrarian is motivated kind of largely in a psychological way that they have to be a little bit different from the mainstream. If they just repeat what everyone else is saying, then they're not doing their job and they're somewhat failing. I think a skeptic, on the other hand, really tries to weigh the evidence the best that they can without regards to whether it's popular or not. And if the popular side is right, then the popular side is right. And I recognize that everyone would say that about themselves, that I just try to weigh the evidence the best I can, you know, without regards to whether it's popular or not. And I think another big difference is the openness to criticism and the openness to feedback. And For example, on a couple of my science-based medicine articles, literally two, readers have pointed out errors that I've made. I made one, I reported one number incorrectly and someone pointed it out to me in the comments in a very rude and nasty way, but they were right. I butchered a number. So all I did is say, thank you very much for pointing this out. I fixed it in the article and I acknowledged that an error had been made and a reader had pointed it out. In contrast, when a contrarian has one of their heirs pointed out to them, they claim to be personally attacked, they may block this person on social media, and they react in a very personal way. I'll also say that I think I'm very similar to the person who I was at the start of the pandemic or before the pandemic. My attitudes towards vaccines have not changed. The attitude of these doctors has changed radically. For example, in 2017, one of the main anti-vaccine doctors who I discussed, a hematologist, oncologist at UCSF by the name of Dr. Vinay Prasad. Anyways, in 2017, he spoke about an anti-vaccine, a doctor who was anti-vaccine for the flu vaccine and rightly called him a quack. But during the pandemic, Dr. Prasad became probably the country's leading opponent of pediatric vaccination. And, you know, he started
0: in a very different place than he is now. So sometimes these doctors make claims that are so easily refutable, right? It's almost like someone talking about the stock market right before the Great Depression. And then the economy fails. And then you go on TV and start talking about how right you were and how great the economy is, right? So they were wrong. Like, we'll have herd immunity next month. Well, next month comes around. How are they able to continue going on TV and discussing after being flagrant, flagrantly incorrect? Yeah, let me just get you here
1: absolutely right. 25 pages of my book are devoted just to doctors declaring the pandemic over starting in basically March 2020. And it's just their words, nothing else. 25 pages of that. But some of these claims, yes. Let me give you a good example of this, and I'll use. I, I think the person who really got minimization off to off to a start, a man by the name of Dr. John Ioannidis, who was a world famous biostatistician and epidemiologist at Stanford. He has more awards than I will ever want, hope to win, in if I could live ten lives, and you know, he's someone who I wrote very favorably about in, in my previous work. Anyways, at the start of the pandemic, he was saying things like. That if only we had taken the same measures to control flu as we have to control COVID, tens of thousands of lives might be saved. He speculated on April 9th that 40,000 Americans would die this season. He did this in an interview in the Washington Post. Now, on April, by April 9th, about 20,000 Americans had already died and 2,000 Americans were dying every day. And unless COVID basically vanished, his prediction would be obliterated, and indeed it was. About eight days later, we exceeded 40,000 deaths, and he responded to this by going on the television show of Fox News firebrand Mark Levin, and minimizing the virus, saying that it was widespread, that it's much less dangerous than we already thought, that people under the age of 65 without medical conditions have essentially zero risk from the virus, And if the bodies piled up, he began to spread what became right-wing, almost QAnon-level conspiracies, the idea that people were dying with COVID, not of COVID, that the only people who were dying were 80-year-olds on their deathbed with metastatic cancer, and you're not even really sure the virus killed them, that death certificates couldn't be trusted, that lockdowns were killing people, and I think probably the most vile, that doctors killed patients through premature intubations. And, you know, maybe this is perhaps the biggest difference between contrarians and skeptics. If I had made any one of these errors, you'd never hear from me again. And I I don't know what makes them so able to go on, having declared the pandemic over so many times, other than, I, I suppose, they just feel that lockdowns destroyed the world. I mean, And they speak about them in very histrionic terms, saying that lockdowns were the biggest attack on the working class since segregation in Vietnam. So first you have segregation, then you have Vietnam, then you have these lockdowns. And again, I don't want to minimize them, but I don't think in in, in the history of the pandemic, they're going to be seen as the main driver of death and suffering.
0: And I've heard it said that if you do public health Well, it'll look like you've overreacted, right? Like, let's say at the beginning of the pandemic, we did something like shut down the country completely for a week, and then the virus just went away. Everyone would be like, oh, my God, this was totally not necessary. right? And we only know because of what actually happened and the millions who've died globally from it, that actually would have been the right decision if it would have had that that consequence. I mean, clearly... Hypothetical, And a lot of the doctors
1: who underestimated COVID at the start, again, predicting that it would kill less than 50,000 people, you know, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, for example, he's another one. He was a an author of the Great Barrington Declaration, and he's an, a health economist and MD, although he's never treated a patient at Stanford. He wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal called, Is the Coronavirus as Deadly as They Say? And of course, the answer was no. And he said, if we're right about the limited impact of this pandemic, then the measures to contain the virus are going to do more harm than, you know, than they're going to prevent. And actually, he said in that editorial, if it's true that COVID is going to kill millions of Americans, then the lock and place, the shelter in place order and quarantines are surely justified. So now a lot of these doctors are rewriting history and sort of saying we could have gotten away with no lockdowns, no school closures, nothing, and everything would have been just fine as long as we'd protected the vulnerable. Again, making very difficult things, impossible things sound very easy.
0: Right. There are no older teachers. There are no students with comorbidities. There is no multi-generational living in this country where children that go to school and let them get infected. They're not going to bring it home to grandma because we're going to let grandma just sit in her room for months, right? Yeah. Insane. Insane. But there, there was someone who did, who is in the public eye, who did make an error and walked it back, right? So I think it, it would be a good idea to give an example of what they could have done if they made an error, right? Paul Offutt, correct?
1: Yeah. So, well, there's two, a couple of doctors in the air in my book who I feature this way. Dr. Paul Offitt is one of them. And in March 2020, he said, maybe he said this in February 2020, at the very start, he said that COVID is going to kill one tenth as many Americans as the flu. And obviously that became sadly a false prediction. And he recognized it right away and said, joked about it, said, well, if you're going to make an ass of yourself, you might as well do it in front of millions of people. And that's the right response. The other doctor whose heirs I highlight are my own. He said a couple of dumb things throughout the pandemic, and I take note of that. I don't hold myself to different standards than I do other doctors, except to say uh, my heirs, fortunately, were seen on Twitter by an audience of dozen. These were not made, as I was talking to President Trump, or advising Ron DeSantis and helping to set policy, or in a Fox News editorial seen by millions of people. So I'm grateful that my heirs, seemed probably had
0: limited effect in the real world. So often discussions on TV with a pundit, they they do lack nuance, right? So part of the nuance that was lacking in these conversations, and I think is still lacking, is there's risk of the disease and there is risk of the lockdowns, right? It's not without risk. Nobody says that, and yet they seem to say that we're saying that right like they put words in our mouths and say like those who were for the lockdowns you know they weren't harmless and they act as if we think they're harmless but it there is nuance and I, I think this is an opportunity to talk about that to talk about what were the deleterious effects of the lockdowns of social isolation masking i really don't think there's a negative effect like not seeing someone smile like the parents that were like my kid hasn't seen someone smile you know what you should you can smile You can smile in front of your kid because you're not wearing masks at home. So I think we can ignore the masks. But the lockdowns and the social isolation, what were the effects of that as best we can quantify? I don't know exactly how to tease those out
1: from a hundred other things that happened, right? The effects of the virus itself. For example, and I think we're still learning about some of this data. For example, there was uh, interesting research that just came out that suicides may have decreased. Teen suicides may have decreased during school closures. So I think that we're still learning about some of these effects. I think that a lot of these effects were short term. I, I, you know, weddings interrupted, schools interrupted, social networks interrupted, non-emergency medical care interrupted. So it definitely wasn't harmless. But again, I don't think it was as bad as Vietnam. I don't think it was bad as segregation.
0: No, but still, always it's always more complicated, right? There's always more nuance and it always bears discussion. And we are discussing it. And it, is, and it was always part of the equation for, uh, I don't want to say it, but I'm going to say it for the left, right? It seems like a lot of this was divided politically, left and right things became very political very quickly,
1: unfortunately. And I think that even from the start, a lot of this was driven by, and this is where I'm going to be, sound a little bit again like a conspiracy theorist, but by right-wing libertarian people who really just wanted the economy to be open. For example, a lot of our pandemic response was driven by a man by the name of Jeffrey Tucker, and he helped author and sponsor the Great Barrington Declaration, which is one of these sort of, they would deny this, but it was basically a let it rip proposal
0: to treating the pandemic. Sorry, you mentioned the Great Barrington Declaration. For anyone who's been to Great Barrington, Massachusetts, it is a lovely town and this Great Barrington Declaration has besmirched its wonderful name. It is a lovely place and if you get the opportunity to go, you should definitely go.
1: I went there during the pandemic. It's beautiful. I love it. So, you know, the Great Barrington Declaration is basically what we have been discussing, this idea that you could both identify vulnerable people and not vulnerable people, and that you could wall them off from each other while herd immunity arrived, a project that would take under six months. So they are claiming that had we done their proposal in October, when it was first published on October 4th, 2020, that the pandemic would have been over by April 2021. And they use that word, pandemic over, that it would have been over by April 2021 at the latest, and we never would have heard of Delta, we never would have heard of Omicron because we would have had herd immunity. I'm not really sure that they've walked that back and have become almost cheerleaders for the virus. Anyways, Jeffrey Tucker helped write this document, and he is a person who is overtly pro-child labor. Uh, Again, I sound like a kind of conspiracy theorist myself, but he wrote an article in 2016 called Let the Kids Work which is exactly what the title suggests. And he suggested that children drop out of school to work at Walmart and Chick-fil-A and these would provide wonderful jobs and it would be much better than just sitting in a stifling, boring classroom day after day. He was also pro-child smoking. He thought children or teenagers could smoke and it would look cool and they would enjoy it, but cigarettes are not addicting. They don't take away free will and people could give this up in their 20s. He also has ties in the early 2000s to racist white supremacist groups, something called the Sons of the Confederacy. So he is not a good man.
0: This is so bizarre. Of all the stances to take, those are so bizarre.
1: And, you know, listen, these are the guys who are saying, open schools, open schools. It's a terror that schools are closed. I don't think they really cared that schools were closed, to be honest with you. But that's a different story. I mean, it's not a different story, as we keep saying.
0: Well, no, he wants to close schools so that all those kids can work at Chick-fil-A.
1: And, you know, I think a lot of this was driven by the, and this is where I'm going to get out on a limb here. So, yeah, you know, this is me out of, further out on a limb than I usually am. But a lot of them, I think, were driven by the school choice movement. And so a lot of these doctors have a lot of tweets. Dr. Vine Prasad, I screenshotted the other day, 50 tweets of his. It was maybe a little obsessive on my part, but it was a little bit obsessive on his part to write them. 50 tweets over the course of the pandemic bashing teachers unions. And he has received grants from the John Arnold Foundation, a movement run by a former Enron executive who was also very pro school choice, pro vouchers, you know, that they want to get rid of teachers unions and privatize schools. So I think we saw this mixing, toxic mixing of politics and science during the pandemic that people's scientific sort of pronouncements for example Vinay prasad always minimize the virus for children again often using bogus statistics saying that it would kill just one out of a million children which is obviously false because that would imply a maximum of 73 children would die in the united states if 100 percent were infected when in fact 150 children died in january 2022 alone So he constantly minimized the virus for children and constantly said schools should be open. But I think a lot of that was just driven by this idea that it would make teachers' unions look bad. So there I am out on a limb.
0: This is the end of the first half of our interview. Stay tuned for the second half. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review something it would really help me out and maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too the views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like i'm talking directly to you this is not a doctor patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice Thank again for listening to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.